Dan, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. That's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Um, so you've got quite a long resume. Um, retired fighter pilot for the United States Air Force, reaching the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, you flew F-16s on uh, 151 combat missions. Uh, you received four distinguished flying crosses with valor, a purple heart, eight air medals with valor, uh, five meritorious service medals, and some other commendations. Um, why did you join the Air Force? Because I believe your father and grandfather were Marines. What was it that you found fascinating about the uh, United States Air Force? I thought it'd be a better place to meet girls. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, to be honest, uh, my my father was a fighter pilot in the Marines, as you said, and uh, he he told me that if all I wanted to do was to fly jets, fly fighters, then to join the Air Force, because in the Marines, you're a Marine first, obviously, and a fighter pilot afterwards. And during Vietnam, they got so short of Marine uh, infantry officers that they were going to to pull pilots out of cockpits and send them you know into combat on the ground and my dad wasn't too wild about that so he said if, if all you want to do is fly fighters then join the air force and and he was right it worked out well um was it the f-16 that you wanted to fly or was that the airframe that the air force pointed you towards well the way it worked the way it still works is um when you when it looks like you're going to make it through pilot training which is not a foregone conclusion you fill out a, a it's called a dream sheet you know your your top choices and everybody wanted fighters but what they do is they draw a line they rank order you in the class and they draw a line at about eight to ten percent and everybody above that line could either go to fighters attack airplanes or they could be instructor pilots everybody below the line went to bombers or transports and I was just happy to be above the line. It turned out I was uh, number two in my class, so I was able to get my first choice. The, the number one guy wanted to fly an F-15, so I wanted an F-16, and I got it, and I never regretted it. Um, you've got a, an autobiography called uh, Viper Pilot and Memoir of, M of uh, Air Combat. Um, obviously, the F-16 is called the Fighting Falcon. Uh, why is it that the pilots and ground, call, uh, ground crew have taken to calling the F-16 a Viper? Yeah, I don't ever call it a Fighting Falcon. <laughs> no, <laughs> nobody, nobody does that. I always call it a Viper, and, and people will think you know what you're talking about. Um, there was a, an awful 
uh, sci-fi miniseries in the United States way back in the late 70s called Battlestar Galactica. And, and their little space fight. That's it. Well, I did too. You know, at the time, this was before, you know, grand special effects and everything. And, yeah. and, and I, always, I always thought it was a great show. I watched a few reruns of it not long ago, and it is kind of kind of cheesy. But uh, yeah. you know, at the time, it was really neat. And the, their little their little fighter that they flew was called a Viper. And there was one expression they you know they'd come over the loudspeakers in whatever spaceship they were in, and they'd say, "Launch all Vipers." And so it just sort of got uh, appended to the F sixteen as a nickname because nose on, you know, it kind of looks similar to that that old you know sci fi spaceship, and we just called it a Viper. Beautiful. So. Um... What was it like going through that sort of selection process then, going through flight school? What sort of mental challenges did you face? And what were there, if any, sort of physical challenges experiencing all the G-force? Well, there weren't a whole lot of Gs in, in basic flight school. In the US Air Force, the way it works is once you pass all the tests, once you've made all the, the grades and you've been accepted into pilot training, uh, you, you go and you fly for, back then it was probably four months in a god-awful little airplane called the T-37. Oh, it was horrible. And if you, if, you, if you graduate from that, then you go into a T-38, which is, is an F-5 essentially, you know, the pretty sleek looking, wasp looking kind of airplane, really kind of neat. Um, capable of going very fast, kind of flies like a fighter and it could pull, you know, maybe five Gs. Um, that really wasn't the point of, of pilot training at the time. At the time, it is just to, to get you to get your wings to, to become a pilot. And then once you've gotten to that phase, once you've survived that, then you go on to special schools for whatever jets you're going to fly. And we started with, uh, I think we started with 42 guys in my pilot training class and 21 of us graduated. And out of those 21, three of us went to fighters. And then you go off, I went off to, uh, to Luke Air Force Base in Arizona, and it took 10 months then to go through the F-16 school. And that's when you really start to pull Gs and you're flying a fighter now, not a trainer. Um, and, and there's a lot less mental pressure to some degree because you've already got your wings, you've already got the fighter. You could still fell out of it if, you, you know, if, you're, if, if you're a jackass, but not too many people do at that point. Um, but the big stress then is learning how to deal with that airplane and how to really learn how to fly it and use it as a weapon, because that's what a fighter jet really is. It's a weapon. You know, other planes, they take off, they go from point A to point B and they land and that's okay. But, but a fighter jet's different because the fighter and the pilot are the weapons. So that's what you really spend the most time, uh, learning in those early phases. There were later schools that were much, much more difficult, which I'm sure you want to talk about, but the initial ones, they, they weren't that weren't that strenuous, at least to me. Um, as, as you were saying, you, you attended um, some quite prestigious um, flying schools that you've graduated from. Um, was that during your, your combat missions, did you have to accredit yourself with so many combat missions before you could qualify to go into some of these schools? No, uh, in fact, combat had nothing nothing to do with it, it helped. But, you know, for long period, well, not in the United States case, but there are periods where we actually not fighting anybody, <laughs> not too many anymore, but, yeah. but there are times when we're not fighting anyone. So 
Um, combat really isn't a prerequisite, prerequisite for those schools, but it helped. Um, uh, and, and you obviously learn things in combat that they, they don't teach in the training pipeline. Either they have forgotten the lessons or it was the last war and they don't want to fight the last war. You understand yeah. what I mean. So, so they don't really concentrate on that uh, uh, too much unless there's a war going on at the moment that everybody's coming back from. And they want to, you know, they want to incorporate some of those lessons learned into what they're teaching. So the the three schools that I've got written down, he graduated from, was the the Air Force Fighter uh, Weapons School, uh, the Navy Top Gun, which we're ever so familiar with with the film out at the moment, and also the Air Force Special Ops School. Um, was that the order that you took them in? Uh... I went through, I went through, uh, no, I went through the special ops school and it wasn't the whole school. It was just a couple courses based on where I was going. I was going to go be an exchange officer with right. the Egyptian air force. So they sent me through uh, a couple of, a couple of schools, you know, dirty tricks and, and hand-to-hand -hand combat and how to make a bomb out of a, you know, a, a box of crackers and things like that. Uh, anyway, um, I did that first. And then when I, I, uh, um, I came back from Desert Storm, uh, I went through Miramar and it was just the, the training officer exchange ground part uh, at the time. Um, but, you know, we were there with everybody else. I got to see how the Navy did things. Uh, they're fundamentally very different schools. The, the Navy's idea was to put a lot of people through this one school so that everybody would be, you know, at a certain level. The Air Force's idea was to take a very, very few people and put them through this unbelievably demanding school and then have them go out and teach everybody else. So, you know, to, to wit, the, um, the Navy school, you just had to be a, a two-ship flight leader yeah. to get in back then. I don't know what it is now. And the school lasted six weeks. The Air Force school, you had to be an instructor pilot, the top instructor pilot in your fighter wing, which is usually three to four fighter squadrons. And that school lasted six months. So you can sort of get an idea of the difference in philosophy. Yeah. I understand the Navy's changed it now and they're more like the Air Force school, but, but that's the way it was then. And, and it wasn't, you know, you've been through some schools yourself. Uh, you come out a different you come out a different person in a good way usually but you come out a, a different person and forever changed i know i did with um obviously top gun being in the cinemas at the moment what's your perspective on how realistic is especially the old original top gun how realistic it is to what miramar was like back in the day well back in the day the, the best part about the original movie was the bar scene uh right. because that's really what the our officers club bar looked like. I mean, I'd never seen guys in white uniforms wearing mirrored sunglasses in an O club bar before, uh, but they really did it then. Uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was, it was a blast. That was back before political correctness had taken over and, and, and all the, all the crap that's infesting our military right now. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, but the flying stuff, you know, that's, that's Hollywood. If, if they really tried to film air combat the way it really is, you wouldn't see anything. You know, yeah. they did a pretty good job in the second movie of showing what a guy's face looks like when he pulls seven to nine Gs. And you're essentially doing that all the time. 
and and you know you're talking about a three-dimensional rolling 400 mile an hour kind of furball it's impossible to film it you know so they they, they did okay i mean they used real airplanes that was kind of neat you yeah. know uh we don't in combat we would never fly that close to each other so i'm sure they did that just to get cool pictures of the airplanes uh, you know, it's entertainment. Uh, it was fine. I, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. You know, it's still a, a great soundtrack, and and the Navy's always been much, much better at public relations than the U.S. Air Force has. Um, so obviously, saying uh, the Air Force um, Fighter Weapons School was a lot more intense, a lot more strenuous. Um, when it comes to the sort of mental challenges, how many people sort of dropped out because of the mental pressure and what they had to learn? I never knew anybody that dropped out of weapons school. I, I knew guys that got killed going through weapons school. But by that time, you know, if you go back to what we were talking about with pilot training, you know, and you've got 40 guys and then you've got 20 guys and then you've got maybe five or six guys that go to that go to F-16s. And by the time you get to the one or two guys from a couple of fighter wings that go to the fighter weapons school, they're past the point of not being able to deal with, with stress and, and, and everything that, that comes with that school. So nobody dropped out, but like I said, there, there were quite a few accidents and I did know guys that, that, that died before they could get through. Wow. Um, so passing those schools, um, you joined uh, an elite Air Force um, fighter squadron, Wild Weasels. Uh, and I believe you're credited with the, the most lethal F-16 wild weasel uh, pilot in American history, I'm led to believe. Yeah, I never made that claim. I mean, they, they've said that and that's okay. I kept track of the, of the surface air missile sites that I, I personally destroyed. And if they want to say that, that's okay with me. Um, yeah. You know, we, you know yourself from from being in that sort of environment guys don't really you know they don't keep they don't keep score usually no. uh with things like that um so yeah i've heard that i gave up trying to correct it and tell people yeah that's that's true but i never said it so i just i kind of let it go now um, yeah uh yeah so i mean you understand absolutely um, i yeah. i was very i was very fortunate you know and and the f the wild weasels isn't isn't one squadron that is a, a mission um there's actually there's probably there's probably three or four squadrons right now no more than that maybe four that do the wild weasel hunter killer um mission but it's not a it's not one squadron it's it's there's a couple in uh in kadena i'm sorry masawa in japan there's yeah. one at spangdalem in germany and there's a there's a there's three on the east coast of the united states uh that do it so uh, it's not a, it's not one squadron it's a few squadrons um so as, as you were saying there that your role in the f-16 was to to take out sam sites uh that sort of reminded me of a, another good 1980s film iron eagle 2 where they had the f-16 oh no don't say it <laughs> oh god that was awful uh that's the that's the air force's answer to top gun uh to the movie <laughs> just awful the idea that you know some teenage boy is gonna fly a simulator and hop in an f-16 i don't know anybody that that liked that movie except for maybe the soundtrack <laughs> yeah like i said the navy doesn't does it much better than the air force does um 
so if we could just uh, quickly talk about uh, your distinguished flying crosses with Valor. Um, are you, um, are you comfortable talking about them? How you, how you receive them? If you like. Um, yeah, that's fine. Um, it, it, I, is I that got right? the first one in. Yeah, no, it's all right. I got the first one in uh, in the first Gulf War um, for for being part of a, a group of guys that were unfortunate enough to find an SA three site surrounded by SA sixes and SA eights which at the time were high-end Russian uh, surface-to-air missiles. They're still pretty good missiles. Um, and, and we knocked, that, knocked those SAMs out uh, and protected a strike package that was going into Bama, a refinery. Uh, and it basically crippled Hussein's uh, oil-producing ability. But they couldn't have gotten in there if we hadn't destroyed those SAMs. And we didn't do it with anti-radiation missiles because that's that isn't destroying a SAM. We did it with bombs, which means you have to get close enough to the damn thing to hit it with a bomb. And this was before LGBs and some of the other cool toys that we had in the second Gulf War. So we had to get right down on top of them and, and blow them up. So that's where that one came from. Um, the second one was uh, very shortly into the second Gulf War. Uh, probably the world's biggest sandstorm. I've never seen one this big. It covered all of Saudi Arabia and was coming up into Iraq. <clears throat> and, and there were a group of Marines that had been, US Marines that had been cut off near a town called Nasiriya. And uh, the Iraqis were moving up uh, armored infantry and tanks to surround them and cut them off. But because of the sandstorm, the other close air support aircraft couldn't get down there and do anything about it. Uh, there was a flight of A-10s in front of us, some F-15 Strike Eagles. Uh, that were in front of us and they couldn't get down and, and find these guys. I, I got lucky, I guess. I popped down through the sandstorm and um, I mean, I was low. I was maybe 75 to 100 feet and I had infrared um, Maverick missiles, which are excellent under the right conditions, but they don't work well in sandstorms. The only weapon I had that would work was the 20 millimeter cannon, which means you have to get really, really close um, to these guys, which I did. And I was out of gas and everybody was going home because of the sandstorm. So for a while there, I felt like me and my wingman were the only two airplanes in Iraq. Um, but I managed to get down and, and shoot up the first uh, two vehicles in the column. And then I went around and came in and shot up the ones in the back so they couldn't get away. And then I made two more passes over what was left in the middle before all the flashing lights in my cockpit telling me what a dummy I am because I'm out of fuel. Um, uh, you know, made me made me leave, uh, yeah. but apparently it, it did the trick, and they didn't they didn't uh, wipe out the Marines. And then the uh, third one was was pretty creepy. Uh, it was at the tail end of that sandstorm a few days later, and we were up above all of this, uh, you know, trolling for Sams, looking for MIGs, that, that sort of thing. And a message came in from space or God or whoever, you know, it, we never know where these things came from, but they, they said that the Iraqis had been detected moving uh, armored vehicles out of Baghdad and they were coming south along Highway 1 and, and the powers that be wanted to know exactly what they were. Well, you never, ever, ever fly down through an overcast deck. You, you just don't do it. Uh, because you're going to get shot up if you do, but there really wasn't a choice. They had to know, and I, I knew they had to know because these tanks were going to run into our guys. 
So I went out uh, west of Baghdad and I came down over a big lake uh, because I figured there wouldn't be any stands, you know, on a lake, right? No missiles, no guns, which was a good idea. And I came screaming in over the lake at, I don't know, five, 600 miles an hour. And uh, I popped over a little, you know, high escarpment. And it wasn't a company of tanks. It was the Medina Division of the Republican Guard. And they saw me about the same time I saw them. And it was Mr. Toad's wild ride there for about 30 seconds. I, I was carrying uh, CBUs, cluster bombs. And I just kind of remember kind of eyeballing the road and, and pickling off the bombs because uh, I wanted to be able to maneuver and I wanted to do any damage I could. And then I had 120 chaff and 120 flare bundles and they were all gone in 30 seconds because those guys shot everything they could at me. I don't know how they missed. Maybe because I was so low and fast because by that time I was really low, like you know, below 100 feet and really, really fast uh, just below the sound barrier trying to get away from these these guys. But again, apparently I, I got lucky and some of the cluster bombs blew up the road, slowed the advance, and, uh, and we were able to, uh, to fight back. And, and I told them what it was, you know, I said, this isn't a company of tanks, it's a division. And so they were able to prepare a little bit for that. Uh, and the last one was um, early, in, early in April of 2003. And um, I, it was really kind of a cool situation. Usually I would go up and I'd lead flights of four to six to 12 airplanes. But on this day, um, two of our guys had airboarded and gone home. So me and the other guy, uh, who was also an instructor pilot and a very fine fighter pilot, it was just he and I, which is really nice. It means you don't have to worry about him, right? Because you know this guy really knows what he's doing. Yeah. And we were orbiting around Baghdad trying to pick a fight and get somebody to shoot at us so we could shoot back. And they told us that uh, Saddam Hussein was trying to make a getaway and, and special forces on the ground, I don't know if they were Brits or Americans, had found his getaway helicopters. And they zapped the coordinates to space and space zapped them back down to us. And they said, we want you to go knock out the helicopter so he can't fly away. And that's just a nutty idea. Again, you have to go down through an overcast. And Baghdad was still very, very heavily defended. I think there were 10,000 pieces of anti-aircraft guns, just, just guns, you know, alone. But uh, Scott Manning and I, the guy with me, uh, we, we did it. We dropped down through the sucker hole, hoping we wouldn't get, you know, shot up. And, and we attacked this little cruddy, cruddy little airfield in the north part of Baghdad where these helicopters were. And I could see, I remember five or six miles away, I could see the wisps of vapor from their turning rotor blades. It was that kind of a morning, you know, the right kind of environmental conditions. We saw them right away and we were able to put, uh, put four clusters of uh, CBUs on them and uh, a couple of Mavericks and blew them all up and, and kept Hussein from getting away that way. I'd like to think that eventually led to his, you know, eventual capture in the spider hole a little bit later, but who really knows? Uh, we got the helicopters and that's what the last flying cross was for. Wow. Th thank you very much for sharing those stories with us. Uh, just before we get on to your to your writing, was there any good luck charm that you took with you on board when you went out on these missions? Absolutely. My wife's red panties. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I kept them in the in a zippered shoulder pocket of my flight suit. Absolutely. Yep. My lucky charm. Her red panties. <laughs> Um, so you are uh, 
an award-winning author. Now, uh, I've spoken to veterans before on how they use uh, writing uh, as a method of coping with leaving the armed forces, perhaps um, dealing with things they've seen and, and been through. Was that the case for you? Did you um, did you find it difficult transitioning from the military to civilian life? Not the way you think of it. Um, I don't miss the military. I miss flying fighters. Yeah. Uh, I don't particularly miss the military. I'm sure you understand. I mean, I, I liked it. I, I, you know, I loved what I did, but it was time to go. Uh, so I never really had any any dilemma there. Um, I started writing because after I left the military, I became a, a mercenary, sorry, a private military contractor. Um, <laughs> and uh, I did that on and off for about three years. And I got, I got, uh, I got hit again in Baghdad um, coming out from one of our, we only did six weeks over and we'd come back for six weeks. It was really kind of a, a Gucci setup. It was nice. Yeah. But I was coming back because my wife was giving birth to my my little boy, and I was the uh, station chief of our operation, so I could leave whenever I wanted. So I flew myself up to Baghdad, and then I was going from the military side to the civilian side to catch a civilian flight out through the green zone, and and we got uh, we got in a little bit of a of a, of a, we had a little bit of an incident there. Anyway, um, I eventually got home, although I'm still not sure today how I. I managed that because I was dripping blood and I didn't look very good. I hadn't had time to shave or clean up and I had a full beard and I didn't look good. So I'm surprised they let me back into the United States, but they did. And, and after all the dust settled, I, I thought maybe I should write down some of the things I'd done for my, for my little boy, because I got the feeling as I'm sure you've had that my luck is running out yeah. and, and I want to write this down before something happens to me. And that was the, the genesis of the first book, the Viper Viper Pilot book, uh, which you know I went back for the first time in ten years and, and read it a few weeks ago. It was actually uh, pretty pretty amusing in parts and some parts not so amusing. It's it's a good book, but it did it did very well. Um, and so the publisher said, "What else do you have?" And I'd never thought about being a writer before, yeah. uh, but it just sort of one thing led to another. And, and I kept managing to write, write good books. And now it's become more of a, of a quest. I don't know how the, I think I get the sense that the, the population in the UK is much more attuned to their history than the population in the United States is attuned to ours. And it's become a quest then to make sure people don't forget what has gone before and what some of these guys have sacrificed on our behalf. Um, if I may just... Um quickly circle back to that point you made about um, you, you joined um, PMC for a little bit after leaving the Air Force. Um, what was it that interested you about going uh, PMC rather than going straight into like a, a civilian corporate role? Uh, the paycheck. <laughs> um, uh, no, the pay was a big factor. I, you know, like most of my kind, we, we migrate towards the airlines, you know, yeah. or corporate flying or something like yeah. that. And I just, I just never could see myself, you know, where we call them ice cream suits, you know, with the little clip on ties and, and, you know, standing there saying, welcome to American flight 73 and, you know, listening to people grade you on your landing and stuff like that. I was always a single seat fighter pilot. The idea of ferrying around 150 people behind me didn't appeal to me. 
so I wasn't really, I didn't really ever consider doing that. Uh, in the corporate world, you know, who wants to be at the beck and call of, of, of some, you know, corporate suits who snap their fingers and expect you to fly an airplane and get them orange juice and everything else. Uh, it just wasn't in me to do it. Uh, the other thing was I, I did have a little bit of a, of a, a little bit of trouble letting go of the adrenaline, you know, I'm sure you do the adrenaline, the danger, you get used to it. I mean, it's hard to describe to people that haven't lived that way. You get it, you know, you feel different. You feel more alive when you're doing something dangerous. And I, I always felt a, a very deep satisfaction when I would survive something that I knew most people couldn't live through. Uh, so there was a little bit of that too. Um, so that's, that's why I, I kind of morphed into, into, into the PMC world and no regrets, you know, it yep. was, it was okay. But again, it was, it was time to leave when the time came. Um, so back to your writing, how, how easy do you find writing? Cause um, I would imagine that your, your, your autobiography, uh, that was quite easy to write yourself. I would imagine. Yeah, because it was all in my pointed little head, you know, I didn't have to, yeah. I didn't have to really do a whole lot of research and I kept, you know, against the rules, but most guys do anyway, I kept a lot of the materials and the, you know, the lineup cards and the mission cards and other things that we'd use. So I, I had all that available and was able to, to write from that. Um, I wrote one novel that I really loved. It's called The Mercenary. Uh, great story, by the way. Um, and I'd love to write more novels because you can just make stuff up. Uh, you yep. don't have to do a whole lot of research, but they, they got me into this nonfiction historical track. And that's kind of where I'm, I'm, I'm stuck at the moment. I always thought the novel would make a, a great movie. It's sort of like Jason Bourne meets Maverick. You know, it's, it's, it's a really cool story. And like most fiction, it's really not fiction. Most of it, somebody like you, other people would, would read a lot of it and think, yeah, okay. I know what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, as far as the nonfiction goes, um, you know, it depends. Some of them are harder than others. Uh, sometimes I felt like I bit off more than I could chew. Uh, I wrote a book called Lords of the Sky, which is a hundred year history of fighter pilots, starting with World War One. And I definitely thought I bit off more than I could chew with that. It worked out great. It's a great book. Um, in fact, about the first 50 or 60 pages are all about the, the, the Royal Air Force. Um, I caught a lot of grief from that. <laughs> you know, hear people, I just spent so much time talking about the Brits. I'm like, well, that's because the Brits and to a lesser degree, the French were the ones who started all this. And we, you know, we, yeah. we really had nothing to do with it for a while. So, you know, I hope some people learn some things out of that. Um, others, you know, uh, some of them are kind of controversial, like the book about the breaking the sound barrier. My contention is Chuck Yeager was not the first one to do it. And I think I proved it. Yeah. Uh, this last book that came out in May, uh, was is probably my my favorite book. Doesn't have anything to do with flying. It's about a marine uh, lieutenant who escapes from Corregidor and spends the next eighteen months, you know, fighting the Japanese behind the lines and ends up getting captured and sent to Japan as a POW. But I, I had his fifteen hundred page manuscript that he'd written after World War II. His daughter has had it all these years, and she was gracious enough to give it to me. And so I was, it was fascinating to write. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm in this guy's head as he's describing all these things, you know, and there's nothing like, like a, a first person point of view. I mean, we could talk about our experiences, right and left, write it down, whatever people would read it. 
but it means something else when you're right there and you're going to tell people things that they don't know or haven't thought of from your point of view. And that's what his whole manuscript was about. So that that book was was very easy to write and it's it's doing it's doing well at the moment. I hope people continue to read it because it's a great story. Awesome. Um, I get a sense you get uh, quite a lot of enjoyment out of writing these books. What's the sort of um, average turnaround for you to actually come up with a conception for a story and to get it to a publisher? How long does it take you to, to write it? It takes about six months to agree on an idea, which we always do ahead of time. And it's not a, I do it with my agent. He, he tells me what he thinks will sell. I disagree. I tell him what I think will sell. He disagrees. And we eventually come up with an idea. Then for nonfiction, you have to put together a proposal, which is a good quarter of a book. You know, it's got to be very well researched. You have to give, you know, sample chapters. You have to have done your research on the market and competition and all sorts of things. So it takes about six months to do all of that and, and have it accepted by a publisher. And it usually takes me a year to 14 months to write a book. Uh, and then when the book has been accepted by the publisher, I usually move on to another proposal and another idea while that first book is getting prepared to print. You know, it gets edited five or six times. You come up with the pictures. They do all the, you know, the appendices, the index, the maps, all that stuff. Um, so by the time the book actually comes out, you know, I haven't seen it in a year. I'm already well on to the next book. I, I try to keep them rolling like that just so I always have something something to do. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to um, the cover art of a book, I always find, um, I know it shouldn't, but cover art of a book will attract me. Do you have much input when it comes to the cover art of your books? Is that something that you take quite personally uh, or, or is it something that's uh, left up to the publishers? No, um, I, I have a lot to say about it. Uh, I have never had a publisher that didn't come up with several good options. Um, we very rarely take the first one. You know, sometimes you like the layout, but not the color or the color, but not the layout. Um, sometimes what they think looks cool doesn't make any sense. For example, the first time the, uh, the Viper book, well, when it was published and after it's published, it, it moves on to foreign publishers. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and that's always nice because that's that's easy money. But I remember when the Viper book came back from a Polish, a big Polish publisher uh, called Pascal, um, and I looked at the cover. They hadn't asked me about it. They just picked a, a picture that they thought looked good, and it was actually an F-15, uh, not an <laughs> F-16. Only only a fighter pilot would know that though, because it was just a picture of the pilot's you know head with a mask, and it was just. You could just see the outline of the cockpit and anybody that had ever flown an F-16 or an F-15 would know the difference. But, you know, aside from small things like that, they're, they're always very good about saying, hey, you know, do you like this? Is this good? Uh, not just the cover art, but also the, you know, the end papers yeah. inside the book. We, you know, in one book, we did a whole bunch of uh, patches from World War One and World War Two. I think in another one, we did a bunch of recruiting posters and propaganda posters. In this last book, uh, we put a lot out of Bill's personal letters, you know, onto the the end papers of the book to create a good look. So it, it's sort of a team effort, and and I've never been displeased with one. Fantastic. Uh, what uh, does the future hold in store for yourself when it comes to writing? 
have you got plans in the process, uh, perhaps book signing somewhere or visiting and promoting? Uh, I, I have just finished uh, part one and part two of the US book tour here. I think all that's left now is radio, which is fine because I can I can sit around in my shorts and <laughs> I don't have to shave and, and, and radio is fine. So that's okay. Uh, there's always uh, some book festivals and conferences. Uh, I would I would love for uh, Macmillan's uh, UK uh, counterpart to invite me over to to England for a, a book event for Valor. Uh, they haven't done it yet, but maybe after hearing your podcast, somebody will decide that's a good idea. Um, and I've crossed. got uh, I'm under yeah fingers crossed. I've got a, I'm under contract right now to to finish a book uh, sort of the middle of next year. It's dealing with the Doolittle raid uh, into into Tokyo. And I'm working on a proposal for another book that that I think will be really, really good if it's accepted. So no hints yet on that one. Well, uh, if you come across the UK for a book signing, I'll make sure I'm there first in line with a book in hand ready for you to sign. I will let you know if that if that comes to pass, I would I would love to get over there uh, and do that. And, you know, I, I've like we talked about, and you know this better than I do, but I mean, the, the Brits have never forgotten what they owe their military. Uh, and, and I think they're, they, are, they are properly interested in other militaries that have contributed to the freedom of the world as well. So some American books do really well uh, in the UK and I, I'm hoping Valor, Valor does too. So we'll see, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, couple of questions before I, I leave you to get on with your afternoon. Um, first is, if you could have flown uh, any aircraft from the First World War and the Second World War, uh, what would those two aircraft have been? Oh, I think in the, uh, in the First World War, it would have been a stop with Camel. And in Good the choice. Second World War, it would have been, it would have been the Corsair. Oh, I would have gone uh, B-17. Ah, a bomber. I could never fly a bomber. Well, um, B-17s, I, I find them quite iconic with the 8th Air Force, especially being in Lincolnshire, because uh, the 8th Air Force uh, Bomber Command was um, in Lincolnshire during the Second World War. Uh, so I find it um, a little bit historic and uh, fascinating, especially when it comes to the B-17s. Oh, no doubt. Um, and it's a, it was a fabulous, fabulous airplane. It's just a, it's a different mindset. A bomber is offensive in that it drops bombs, but everything else about it is defensive. You know, it's a flying fortress. It's exactly. supposed to withstand an attack. Fighter pilot is by nature offensive and aggressive. And I, I just, I don't think I have the temperament to be a bomber pilot. Brave guys. I mean, to sit there and get shot at. And the pilots don't actually have any weapons you know, to use. So that's, that's even more bulky in my opinion. I, I couldn't have done it though. I would have had to have been a fighter pilot. Absolutely. But a uh, good choice for the Sopwith Camel. Um, yeah, that, that would have been my choice as well. Um, I've, um, I've seen one of those fly at the um, uh, Shuttleworth collection. Uh, they have some uh, old First World War biplanes that still fly and uh, how slow they go. It's amazing they actually stay in the air. Yeah, you know, and, and it's amazing that they could, I mean, it was all done with eyeballs, you know, yep. back then. I'm used to my, my air-to-air radar that could lock onto a, 
you know, a falcon at 160 miles, you know, I, the fact that they did it all with their eyes was, was just incredible. Uh, and I, I flew some of those planes when I was riding Lords of the Sky because I always try to put the reader into the cockpit if it's about planes. So they get wow. a sense of what it was like to actually be in that airplane. So whenever I can, you know, I, I fly the ones that I, I write about. So I got to fly a few of those and they were, they were pretty scary machines. I mean, there wasn't much to them. <laughs> you know, no, a big, big no. stick and a couple of pedals and a, and a pair of machine guns. That was about it. So uh, my hat's off to those guys. Brave, brave men. Absolutely. Uh, and my second question is, um, if anybody's listening to this who's uh, soon going to be coming out of the military, um, do you have any advice for them, uh, any tips for how to prepare from leaving from the service to civilian life? Find something that you love to do or that makes you happy and stick with it. Um, especially the people that have, have been, you know, that are combat veterans. Everybody handles that their own way. You know that. Uh, yeah. Some people do it better than others. A lot of it has to do on your background and where you came from and a whole bunch of other things we don't want to get into. Uh, but I find that the people that adjust the best uh, have found something that they can hold on to with as much enthusiasm as they did with whatever they did in the military. Uh, I was never one of those guys that would go back to a base and hang around and tell boring stories. In fact, I, 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 don't, I can't remember the last time I was on a military base. I think when you leave, you need to, you need to do that, find something, and you need, to, you need to cut the tie. Don't try to hang on to something. It's, it's time to just move on with your life, wake up every day, and, and, and move on. You know, hold the memory of, of what was good about what you did, but don't cling to it. I think the guys that cling to it are the, also have a lot of trouble adjusting because they will never make civilian life into what life was in the military, yeah. especially if they were combat veterans. So you have to be able to just cut the cord and, and, and move on. Brilliant. Uh, I think that's some very good advice and thank you very much for that. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Um, thank you very much for sharing those stories with us, uh, your experiences and uh, explaining about how wonderful your writing is and how well that's going. Um, so I just want to say thank you very much for your time indeed. It's been an absolute honor. Well, it's an honor and a privilege for me as well, Dan. Thanks for the invitation. And if you ever want to talk again about anything, feel free to, to get in touch with me. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.